Today's episode is brought to you by Adam O'Fallon Price's The Hotel Never Sink, which Lydia Kiesling calls a gripping, atmospheric, heartbreaking, almost ghost story. J. Robert Lennon adds, The Hotel Never Sink is an astounding literary feat, a murder mystery, a ghost story, a century-spanning family history, and a stand-up routine all in one, with a dramatic variety to rival any Catskills floor show packing 10 novels worth of narrative into this compact knish of a book. Told by an unforgettable chorus of Sikorsky family members, a matriarch, a hotel maid, a traveling comedian, the hotel detective, and many others, the novel is the gripping portrait of a Jewish family in the Catskills over the course of a century. The Hotel Never Sink is available now from Tin House Books. And since we are talking about Tin House Books... There are several you can get as thank yous for becoming a supporter of the show, including Kristen Arnett's Mostly Dead Things, Ursula K. Le Guin's Conversations on Writing, and Morgan Parker's Magical Negro, not to mention back issues of Tin House Magazine. Or become one of the select few early readers, receiving 12 Tin House books in three seasonal packages several months before they are available to the general public. If that isn't enough to entice you, today's guest, Brandon Shimoda, who is the editor of an anthology of the Lebanese poet Etel Adnan's poetry, is adding to the bonus audio archive a reading of a poem by Etel Adnan that she dedicated to him. All of this, the Tin House books, back issues of the Tin House magazine, the early readership subscription, access to the bonus audio archive, and more can be found at patreon.com slash between the covers. Enjoy today's program. These stories are about the id unleashed. They're about the wildness contained in all of us. I think stories kind of have some kind of magical effect in the world. I think it's really hard to live without stories. And if somebody tells you, like, this is the way you're going to end up, you're lucky if you can forget that. You know, there's me, and then there's writer guy me, and then there's me working, which is the absence of me. It's just story. I had no idea how to write a novel, didn't know if it would ever come to fruition. Was working at a vet and kind of lint rolling puppy hair and cat dander off myself. They're almost like really shy animals. They will come out of the woods, but you have to stay very still. And you have to pretend like you're not interested in them. Artists tend to, like, put their fingers in the wounds, in the silences. I believe in the role of literature as a, as a catalyst for dialogue and, and, and new forms of, of thinking. All the stuff I'm interested in is thrown into the washing machine that is my brain, and it's put on spin. Good morning and welcome to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's guest is the poet Brandon Shimoda. Shimoda is the author of six books of poetry, including Portuguese from Tin House and Octopus Books, The Desert from Song Cave, and Evening Oracle from Letter Machine Editions, which received the William Carlos Williams Award from the Poetry Society of America. Shimoda is also an artist who created the line drawings for the book the Department of Posthumous Letters from Argos Books. Shimoda's writings on Japanese-American incarceration have appeared in the Asian-American Literary Review, Densho, Hyperallergic, The Margins, and The New Inquiry, 
and he's given talks on the subject at the University of Arizona, Columbia, Fairhaven College, and the International Center of Photography. He is the co-editor with Tom Donovan of To Look at the Sea is to Become What One Is, an Etel Adnan reader from Nightboat Books. And Brandon Shimoda is here today on Between the Covers to talk about his first book of nonfiction, his ancestral memoir, The Grave on the Wall, just out from City Lights. Don Miche says of The Grave on the Wall, it is part dream, part memory, part forgetting, part identity. It is a remarkable exploration of how citizenship is forged by the brutal U.S. imperial forces through slave labor, forced detention, indiscriminate bombing, historical amnesia, and wall. If someone asked me, where are you? I would answer, from the grave on the wall. And Banu Kapil says this of the grave on the wall. Shimoda is a mystic writer. He puts what breaches itself always onto the page so that the act of writing becomes akin to paper making an attention to fibers coagulation texture and the water fire mixtures that signal irreversible action or change does the book end is there a sentence that closes it or does it keep being written and forgotten then written again each time the reader opens it for the first time I have never met this writer in person, and perhaps I never will, but he has written a book that touches the bottom of my own soul. Welcome to Between the Covers, Brandon Shimoda. Hi, nice to see you, David. So one way into the grave on the wall, I think, is through questions raised by the ways we attempt to memorialize or represent the past, and also the ways those attempts to remember the past can be acts of erasure themselves. So given that America in particular is a place where we can't assume that everyone knows the same history um, or acts from the same history, uh, particularly when it comes to history that deviates from white American history, I was hoping we could start by talking about the situation your grandfather, Midori Shimoda, was in as a child. Um, what was going on in Japan and Hawaii and California for his parents that prompted uh, immigration, emigration from Japan and ultimately to the United States. Mm -hmm. So first, just thinking about what you said about histories that deviate from white American history, um, the history that I think about with my, with the Japanese side of my family, um, as well as many other histories that have been, uh, I guess, um, imagined as deviations, um, are actually white American history in the sense that, so thinking about my great grandfather who came over as uh, a contract laborer on a, on a pineapple plantation outside of Honolulu, um, that history that he was a subject of was a history being written by white America, um, at the time to, to satisfy all of the kind of voracious needs and requirements of white America. But to think about it as a deviation is basically to say that's those subjects that are feeding that machine are not really um, part of the dominant narrative. So just to think about it that way. Um, I think part of my, part of my initial attempt at writing this book was that I wanted to, to, 
discover and understand parts about my family's history that had never been talked about. So I knew nothing. I knew very little about my grandfather's life prior to my entrance into his life. I knew nothing about my great grandparents, nothing really about my ancestors. So the desire was to write a book that would give me the opportunity to, to learn some of these things. And I actually feel like in a certain way I failed and that I didn't, there's, there's so much that I still don't know and don't understand because, um, there's a limit to what I was able to uncover. Um, but, um, in thinking about my great grandfather, so my grandfather's an immigrant, but my great grandfather came over to the United States or he came over to Hawaii long before my grandfather did. And that's, he, he represents the first entrance of the Shimoda family into the United States. And also in a way the, the book is, it's like opened up an occasion for me to keep, um, to keep studying this sort of thing, because I feel like I set out a bunch of things that, um, are sketches that now I'm filling in the sketch through, through post book research. It's maybe I'm doing it hmm. backwards, but hmm. yeah, I think a big part of the, of the work is to, to illuminate those histories and pair them with this idea of white American history and to say white American history does not run without the history of the marginalized and the oppressed. They in fact are the labor that makes white American history possible and legible, right? So the 26 voyages of 29,000 Japanese contract laborers from Japan to Hawaii in a less than 10 year period in the mm -hmm. late 19th century um, that affected your family and mm -hmm. which the need for that contract labor coming from uh, the Chinese exclusion act and mm -hmm. from the genocide of native peoples. Right. Um, that is what you're saying is that is white history. So the Japanese emigration right. to Hawaii, the, the, need for that even is ultimately coming from a white narrative. Right. Yeah. I mean, if you imagine like, um, for some reason, this is the image that, that came to mind. Hieronymus Bosch's garden of earthly delights. He is the painter. Uh, you know, everything that we're seeing in that triptych are, are the subjects and the objects that he uses to sort of create his vision. But mm. he is the painter in the sense that white America is, has, um, I think, given itself the status of the painter of history, but um, all of the all of the figures and and um, all of the figures that are populating that vision are uh, the other, right? Yeah. Well, I want you to um, read a really brief section about picture brides. But before you do, I know it's a complicated history, but mm -hmm. could you at least give us a little orientation to what picture brides were, um, how they affected your family and sure. and many Japanese families at the time? Yeah. Because as people will see as we go into this conversation, um, your book is very much about photography and about pictures in addition right. to, to yeah. many other things. Uh-huh. Yeah. So there's a lot of legislation and um, agreements between the United States and Japan, as well as different anxieties that were happening within the United States, um, race-based anxieties that led to the picture brides. But what they were, in fact, was um, there were Japanese men in the United States 
who were not legally permitted to, to marry. So they had to marry women that were in Japan. Um, but more often than not, the two had never met each other. So they were able to become acquainted with each other through exchanging photographs of each other. Um, the women were primarily, you know, t they were teenagers for the most part. The men were, some of them were very old. They, they, they ranged. So they exchanged photographs through an intermediary and often um, the photographs that the men would send back to Japan were um, either doctored or photographs of them when they were much younger or photographs of people that weren't them in a way to sort of seduce these potential wives. Um, well, and to connect this to the, your assertion that this is also white history, right. um, if I have the history correct, please, please correct me if I don't, but this story that might on its surface seem like, oh, this is the way um, Japanese immigrants found love or, or found right. marriage. Yeah, yeah. It was the product of a deal with the president of the U.S. who wanted to segregate Japanese um, students in schools. Right. And there was a deal made allowing this picture bride phenomenon or immigration of a certain sort. Yeah no segregation in schools, but a very large reduction in the number of people who came. Am, am I, am I on the right track? Yeah. So the gentleman's agreement, which I touch on very briefly in the book it is, it is, was the agreement that, um, yeah, like you're saying, it had to do with a lot of different kind of legislative moves that ultimately resulted in, um, a loophole actually. I mean, picture brides, were what happened is the United States limited Japanese immigration to the United States. And one of the exceptions to that, to that limit was the limitation was you could immigrate if you already had family within the United States. So by marrying, then you became family and you could immigrate. Okay. Um, but it was a massive reduction in, in immigration. So, um, yeah, so th that, you're right. I think a lot of people, when they hear about picture brides, they think, oh, that's such a, an interesting cultural, you know, it's an interesting element of culture. But in fact, it was, um, it was motivated by racist legislation. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, let's hear this little section on page 10. Okay. The women were given pamphlets by immigration training societies on how to dress and bathe and walk like a Western woman how to sit on a toilet, how to cook food that would not offend their white American neighbors. They were not, due to legislation dating back more than 100 years, permitted to become American, but they were expected to behave American. They were expected to be both exemplary and invisible. The proxy weddings in Japan were not recognized in the United States. When the young woman arrived after three weeks at sea, they were married a second time in mass ceremonies on the docks. A young woman is a bride and the groom doesn't always belong to the human species. The men often looked considerably different from the men in the photographs, older, 10 to 15 years on average, less attractive, or not the men at all, brothers, friends, cousins. Between 1908 and 1920, over 10,000 Japanese picture brides immigrated to the United States. The unintended consequence of the gentleman's agreement was the first generation of American-born children of Japanese ancestry, the Japanese Americans. 
the ladies' agreement followed in 1921, ending the emigration of picture brides. The last passport issued to a picture bride was dated February 29. It was valid through the 1st of September. We've been listening to Brandon Shimoda read from his latest book, The Grave on the Wall. You say that picture brides, in a sense, are marrying the photographs first um, before they marry their future husbands and before they discover the ways in which the the photos are not telling the truth or mm-hmm. hiding the truth behind them. And in that regard, I was thinking of you placing yourself in, in the role of a picture bride in The Grave on the Wall mm-hmm. because this book's origin begins with you confronting a, a photo mm-hmm. and then discovering with the more time you spend with the photo that maybe it's not telling you what you originally might think. Um, so tell us about the origin story of, <laughs> of the grave on the wall and why the origin story of this book centers around one specific photograph. Yeah. It's funny. Cause in that formulation, I am, am I would be marrying my grandfather. Yeah. Right. Or maybe, or he would be marrying me. And I think, I think in an earlier version of the book, I do, um, in a more hyperbolic kind of maybe saccharine version of the book, I did write about, um, being my grandfather's bride. You did. I did. Yeah. I don't know where that, those, those paragraphs went. I mean, I felt the love, I mean, as conflicted as you are around this photograph, right? you do, I think you put it under your pillow at one point, um, in the book and there is this great magnetic attraction happening between you and and this photo right from which spins out all of this uh, all this meditation on on many other things yeah yeah i mean it it, also the idea that um right there's a sentence about the women were marrying the photographs first and that was that seemed to be factually true because they were often getting married um, in Japan when the men were in the U S or in mm. Hawaii. So they were marrying the photographs, mm. but that, um, uh, I don't know if it's, <laughs> if you would share this, this idea that, um, in any relationship we're, we're more or less committing to an idea or at least the potentiality before the actual person slowly starts to reveal who they are. Right. Mm. So, um, but yeah, the photo you're, you're referring to is a photograph of my grandfather taken in 1943 when he was in the Department of Justice prison in Missoula, Montana. And it's a picture. Well, there's several pictures, but one main picture is of him wearing a bra and a slip. Um, and I think that's it. It's a picture that... Um, almost immediately after a moment, the moment that I first saw it, I became obsessed with and knew that I wanted to deal with, deal with in some way. And that, um, I still am dealing with whether it's the photograph or all of the things that are sort of generated out of that photograph. It's, um, the book didn't, the book didn't quench my, Mm -hmm. (laughs) my desire to understand what it was that I was looking at and spending time with. Hmm. Um, tell us why it's this photograph that, yeah, that has created this exploration and this art making. 
I think part of trying to understand or trying to articulate why is manifesting in my inability to stop writing about it. I don't, in other words, um, I might approach an answer, but then I get, I get thrust into another direction. So I don't, I don't really know actually why, but this is a photograph that is, is part of an exhibit, a very small exhibit on the incarceration of Japanese immigrants in Fort Missoula. And it's, um, the exhibit is in the ruins of the, the prison. Um, so I went to graduate school in Missoula, uh, Montana, and uh, I moved there in August of 2004. And almost immediate, one of the first things I did is I went to that museum exhibition. And I write about this in the book that I went there with the determination that I was going to encounter my grandfather. Uh, I didn't know in what form that would happen, but I felt pretty confident that I would find him there. Um, maybe somewhat arrogantly, um, that he would just manifest in, you know, it's so explicitly in, in the sight of his own history. Um, the museum has one of the original barracks where the men lived and they've converted just a really small part of that into a pretty small exhibition that is just a small room that has, you know, maybe 30 photographs most of them fairly straightforward depictions of, um, of, of incarceration, um, men eating food, men standing in line, um, barbed wire fence, guard tower, all of those kind of like, um, uh, fairly stereotypical markers of that history. Mm. And then towards the end of the, that, that, uh, arrangement of 30 photographs is three photographs of a man dressed as a woman. There's many things that are remarkable about that. One is that there is no caption. So many of the other photographs have captions, but then you arrive at these photographs of a man dressed as a woman, and there's no explanation as to what is taking place. Um, you can kind of piece together that it's a performance, part of a performance. Uh, when I saw those photographs, I froze, and I think all the blood rushed to the bottom of my, my toes. Mm -hmm. Um, because the man, the man in the photographs is, was my grandfather and he was roughly the same age I was when I saw them. And I mean, I kind of, I, I kind of have, I think I still exist in that state of shock, even though I don't necessarily know what the nature of that shock was or continues to be. Hmm. But I felt like I was looking into a very perverse and very revelatory mirror. And what I saw was the beginning of a much deeper and darker truth about incarceration from which I had been withheld within my own family. Um, because it was a, it was a history and a subject that, that was never discussed. So I felt like I was, um, I had been permitted this glimpse into something more truthful that it was almost like it was threatening to hold me up against that history in a way that I wasn't prepared for. Hmm. So, um, it's a beautiful photograph. I mean, my grandfather was a, a beautiful man 
and he has a huge smile on his face and um he's an enemy alien incarcerated by the government of the country into which he's trying to create a life for himself well i'd like you to read the section about the first encounter with the photo particularly because also the smile i think takes on different meanings as you spend time with the photo itself but before you do can you can you speak to um why you call this photo the grave on the wall why you see it as a grave sure ultimately so we cremated my grandfather and scattered his ashes in death valley in 1996 and um, we scattered his ashes in a location that's actually very difficult to find so we've returned a few times since then and haven't been able to find the exact location because it's the desert and it's um it ha- it's, it's, it has a powerful genius for sort of evading its visitors hmm. um, in ways that are obviously um, terrible and tragic. And um, But in this situation, he doesn't really have a grave. There's not, there's not or at least my, my original thought as I was starting to, when I was in the early years of mourning my grandfather's death, is that there was no place that I could really go to be with him. So when I discovered these photographs hanging on the wall in the ruins of the prison, I felt like I was being offered a place to visit him. So that became kind of the ritual grave that became the grave where I could go. And I, because I lived nearby, I could go as much as I wanted to spend time with him. Um, but I think what started to complicate that idea over time is that um, these photographs are very specific, right? They're, they're expressing um, a moment and maybe several moments in which his, his life was arrested. So uh, I sort of feel like a grave proliferates out of any moment in which our lives are arrested. Mm-hmm. Um, I, th- I, I write in the book, I think, a moment of arrest or a moment of a part of us having broken away. So that we actually like have an entire wake of graves behind the present moment. I think it's all it's all feeding into this idea that um, as we live our lives, even if we're living lives that are relatively uncontested, there are parts of us that are constantly being sloughed off or constantly breaking away. So I, I envision our lives as being a process where we're generating a wake of graves. But then if you have someone like my grandfather who was, who was, who was arrested, you know, by law, he was arrested and in the process of his arrest, he had to, in a way, transform himself into maybe a more legible, uh, acceptable version of the person he might've originally imagined himself to be Hmm. so that, so that a part of him very, um, a very considerable part of him was arrested and broke away. So that's what the photograph is a picture of, of that moment or that phase in, in his life. And then the photograph itself is a grave. So it's like going to the grave to look into a proliferation of other graves that he was, that he was generating out of his own experience. Hmm. So the way I sort of feel about the photograph is that it's presenting to me a grave of mirrors, right? It's just, 
it goes in so many different directions at once. And maybe that's what a grave is. You know, when you go to spend time with the dead, um, it's a dimensionless experience or it's an omni, omni dimensional experience. Well, let's hear that section. Sure. I went to the ruins expecting to see Midori's face, but I did not think I would see Midori's face. So when I saw Midori's face, I felt sick. It was the kind of uncanny recognition that registers first as nausea. I turned away, then turned back, leaned closer, and touched him. The wall fell back. The roof of the barracks lifted off. Midori's face was brighter than daylight, and though I remember it being warm and round and full of love, I was a part of it. I remember it being gray and soft and unaccountably sad, of a sadness I could not name. I saw my father's face for the first time in the frame of incarceration. I saw my sister Kelly's face. The sun had fallen to earth, revealing its exact size and dimension. Who has the nerve to touch the sun? Midori was staring through the mirror, through the photographer, through the guards, through the mountains surrounding the valley, through the clouds washing down the faces of the mountains. I felt like I was being thrown through Midori's face into the immediacy of a history that was, until then, remote, more or less extinct. I ran across the field. The only person in the museum was the woman in the gift shop, Sharon. I told her I had just come from the barracks, that my grandfather was hanging on the wall. I described him, out of breath. She told me to wait a minute, then disappeared. She returned with a three-ring binder and an envelope. The binder contained photographs of the prisoners, mostly Italian, a few Germans, some Japanese. The Italians called Missoula Bella Vista. They were from Europe, lived in Europe. They were not immigrants. Some of them stayed in the valley after their release, so beautiful was their view. The photographs depicted the interstitial, less photogenic moments that illuminated incarceration as wasteland, arbitrary confusion. The envelope contained five photographs from the binder Sharon had photocopied. All five were of Midori. They were taken by Peter Fortune, an INS agent in Hawaii, called up to Fort Missoula, where he worked in food service and, in his free time, took photographs. In one of the photographs, Midori is wearing a bra and white slip, skin-toned stockings rolled down his thighs, and black shoes, and is posing alone, smiling. Midori's body and face are a map describing a territory I know, think I know, or have known, but which looks from the vantage of this graphic projection of him unfamiliar, another territory altogether. I try to locate myself. Every landmark and place name, every feature is visible, if not accessible, at once. But the cardinal directions have switched places, gone missing. I've always associated hair that stands straight up off a person's head as evidence of the restlessness of their thoughts. Midori's ears are large. When I squint, his ears move. His right leg is up on a wooden bench. His right hand is cupping his knee. His left leg is bent. The back of his left hand, pressed against his hip, covered by the waistline of the slip, hanging mid-thigh, evokes restraint. Two veins run the length of his left forearm. The vein in his right arm, corresponding to the vein on the underside of his left, is visible, originating in the terminal of his elbow, snaking to his wrist. That is where I see myself most clearly, in his veins and arms. 
his right arm straight, partially obscured at his bicep by his bra and chest, his left pectoral visible between his shoulder and the top of the bra. Two eels are swimming beneath his skin. His stockings are rolled down his thighs just below the hem of the slip. The slip is tight, though soft. The waistline of his slip is folded in above his navel. The hem of his slip is a fringe of wide circles. Around each circle is a wider circle. A black line beginning at the top of his right thigh swoops at his crotch. The line tapers, disappears into whiteness. Midori's eyes are clear, almost wet with the flash of the bulb, twice reflected. His eyebrows are slightly raised. It is there that I begin to sense skepticism, concern, distrust, and its corresponding lack of agency, resignation. Two lines on his forehead form a pediment. He is smiling, but the lines around his eyes are unmoved. His upper lip is straight, unconvinced. Sometimes his smile is a wave, sometimes a wound, sometimes not entirely his. If not, to whom and how many people, entities, institutions does it belong? Midori did not know Peter Fortune, nor did he know who would see this photograph. He posed in several dimensions at once. Half-naked, proud, even triumphant, he is, against a wall of thick timber, performing. But the longer I stare at his body and face, his eyes and his smile, the less convinced I become that he is actually sharing or free to share any part of himself. Who he is and what he is feeling is being sublimated, suppressed by his outward appearance, pushed down the deep well of his throat, into his chest, but beyond the reach of his heart. When I left the museum, the barracks, the fields, I felt infused with the spirit of connection. Midori and I had been reunited, but the feeling did not last. There was no sense that Midori had been waiting for me, his grandson, anyone. Almost as soon as the body and face of incarceration were revealed, they were replaced with an unconquerable loneliness. The sky was low and tyrannically white. The mountains in the distance were suddenly very close, cliff-like and impenetrable. I called my grandmother, then my father. Their voices were soft underwater. It was not that they did not seem interested in the photographs, but they did not ask any questions, which caused me to doubt what I had seen. It was true. The barracks, isolated and staged, manifested an alternate universe, one in which my desperation had been appeased. I had reduced the history of incarceration not only to Midori's face, but to my desire to understand. We've been listening to Brandon Shimoda read from his latest book, The Grave on the Wall. So when, I, when we think about this photo, maybe like the picture bride photos, but where you're having an encounter that at first might seem to capture a moment, and then the more you, you stare at it, the more under inspection it's, it seems to be suggesting something beneath the surface that maybe even con contradicts the surface. Uh, I think about the other photos that you gravitate toward in, in other books of yours, which also seem to have this quality. So the, the cover of, of your previous book, The Desert, has the three figures in festive ritual clothing and decorative masks. And you might just look at this without any context and see a celebration. And it is technically a celebration. It's a celebration of the Harvest Festival, but from inside the Tule Lake uh, concentration camp during World War II, which interned thousands of Japanese and Japanese Americans. 
Um, and this same photographer, Francis Stewart, took other photos that, like the picture of your grandfather in women's clothes, seem hard to parse. Uh, and most notably, the photos of incarcerated Japanese Americans in blackface or dressed as Native Americans. And you, and you write about your encounter with these photos in your essay, I Am an American, The Photographic Legacy of Japanese American Incarceration. And uh, in that you say, the appearance of a young Nikkei couple in blackface in a U.S. concentration camp on land that had until the late 1800s been inhabited for thousands of years by the Modoc people articulates the dynamic in which non-white people, native, alien, slave, are manipulated as the subjects and counter-subjects of a chronic performance. The photograph illuminates a nearly subliminal moment of anti-blackness masquerading as minstrelsy, masquerading as carefree, careless, communal play-acting, masquerading as jubilation under duress, a.k.a. mass oppression. I guess I was hoping you'd speak more about chronic performance, mm -hmm. not just in relationship to these photographs, but I guess gesturing towards the chronic performance of America. Mm -hmm. um, and particularly, I guess, when I think of photography for a lot of people, their first response is one that they're getting neutral documentation, mm -hmm. that they're getting objective reporting, that they're yeah. getting, um, that the moment is being captured. Right. Do people still feel that way? Well, I don't think <laughs> people who are writing about it, right. about photography, yeah. think that way. Right. But I would think like, like an average person who right. hasn't investigated it might have a more of a bias towards that with a yeah. photograph than with a painting. Yeah. One of the first things you said was um, being able to move beyond the surface of what is seen, right? So looking at a photograph and being able to move beyond or through the surface of something. But I'm not even sure people are paying attention to the surface of things, right? So I would actually correct something I wrote in that um, piece in which I describe this photograph, as you described, of two young Japanese American, this young Japanese American couple in blackface, um, as so, I wrote in in that piece. It's a nearly subliminal moment of anti-blackness, but it's not It's not nearly or subliminal at all. I mean, it's very much on the surface. Mm -hmm. um, and so, I saw that photograph in an exhibition in a museum in Tucson that had many photographs, the original WPA photographs of the, the camps. And then the photo a photographer um, took those photographs, found the subjects, found the people in all those subjects, and went and photographed them now. And they're all in their 70s and 80s. Hmm. Um, but within that exhibition is this, photo this blackface photograph. And it's in terms of its surface, that's what it is. You don't have to really go beyond the surface in order to see what that's, that is. So I'm, now I'm questioning as to why I said it was subliminal. I think it's subliminal, and things are subliminal because of the viewer. And the viewer, the way they're engaging with what's there is in a way preordained. So I think that every time there's an exhibition of photographs about Japanese-American incarceration, the response is, is in a sense preordained. 
you know, as I was in this particular exhibition, I was listening, I was eavesdropping on conversations that other people were having as they were looking at the photographs. And um, it's the kind of language that I remember hearing from my family when I was younger about, oh, it's such a shame. And can you believe what they did? <laughs> you know, all these kinds of things that don't really mean anything. And then there's a photograph of two people in blackface and it's receiving no comment whatsoever because it doesn't fit into people's um, form of, of remembrance and memorialization. So or, is that similar to the lack of a caption for your grandfather's photo? Like there's a way in which, because it doesn't settle into that, yeah. that you sort of skip it, skip over right. commenting on it. It defies captioning. Um, yeah. But in fact, that's the photograph that to me revealed something, a more explicit truth, a more buried, a more in shadowed, but more um, maybe honest and accurate and more debilitating truth of what that history was all about, you know, in terms of this kind of like the psychosis of colonization and thinking about chronic performance, it's like... Um, thinking about the ways in which oppressed communities and populations are forced to um, cannibalize each other or dismember each other at the service of some dominant power, right? Um, That's where I wondered whether, I mean, I agree with you that it's on one level all on the surface. The anti-blackness is on the surface, but then there's the subtext of not understanding who's anti-blackness. Right. So, I mean, the, your first your first glance could be, oh, it's Japanese or Japanese American anti blackness, which it may or may not be. But, um, but is it really? And can people who are incarcerated really be making free choices? And under what circumstances are they making these specific choices? Right. Um, and to what to what ends and what compromises? Like all of that's the part that doesn't feel like it's on the surface. Oh yeah. Though yeah, maybe right. it is on the surface. Yeah. Right. Yeah. No, I was just thinking about how people weren't even people. Well, I, I can't speak for people who are looking or not looking at any anything, but I imagine that it presented something so inherently uncomfortable that they couldn't even see the surface to even get to some of those considerations. Yeah, right? that makes um, sense to me. That it was, I guess that's what I mean. It becomes subliminal because the viewer has this certain block. Hmm. But right, I mean what it unfolds once you actually are confronting and addressing this thing it starts to unfold pretty rapidly it's like this accordion book that opens out and um uncovers all the story behind the many stories behind the, the story that's being promoted so i'm referencing this one exhibition in tucson but also the exhibition in missoula and I do feel like against the will and the whims of the people who are putting these kinds of exhibitions together, against that is the the will, the even more overpowering will of the material, that um, the material will begin to leak through the surface that is proposed by the maker, by the curators, etc. It will leak and it will... Um, it's indomitable. It will start to assert its own force and some fragments of the truth will begin to congeal. But obviously there's a, there's, you know, the viewer has a responsibility to be attentive to that. And when you say the material exerts its own force, 
that's also I'm imagining independent of the photographer who made the material. Oh, for sure. Yeah. 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 I mean, ideally, I mean, that photographer was commissioned by the government, like Dorothea Lange and Francis Stewart. They, they were commissioned by the government. So they had an obligation to, to do a certain kind of work. But, um, I imagine that even those photographers knew that they were going to be capturing things that defied their commission. Um, and it's the same with being a writer or any kind of artist. I, I at least hope that I'm producing things that are, um, I hope that I'm producing things that are defying even my wishes, you know? I can't control whether or not that's good or bad, but I, I think that like maybe a, a, a more honest reality will emerge from what I've made. I mean that there's a limit to what, to, to like my agency in relation to what I've producing. I think mm -hmm. one book that I thought a lot about in relationship to this book, which I know you reviewed a long time ago, but, um, but also an artist who you've been in correspondence with is Banu Kapil's Humanimal. Um, and in that book where she's returning to India, where her ancestors are from, to investigate this story of girls in the 1920s who were purportedly raised by wolves and then rescued by a reverend and rehabilitated, a lot of that feels like um, she's having to put herself in the position of having limited documentation mm -hmm. and not being able to parse what she does have similar to this photograph. So she goes and she, all of the documentation she has, or most of it is from the Reverend himself and is an, is also sort of a self-serving performance that he does for profit at mm -hmm. the expense of the girls. And she has a French film crew with her and that French film crew themselves hire a folkloric acting troupe to reenact the uh, girls being raised by wolves. And so there's just sort of a Russian doll setup of mm. various attempts at representation and documentation mm -hmm. that um, none of which are claiming anything absolute. And you can tell that she doesn't even think that's possible in this sense. Mm. But it almost feels like her father, which she inserts into the story as a body is the book. And, mm. and you wrote in this, in your review, something interesting to me. Um, Banu's family emerges in the form of her father, memories of his skin, the skin on his feet, a map back, but to where the body at once. And in an instant, a sight, a wound, an unraveling atlas. And you had mentioned when you, in that reading, you just did this idea of a map with your own grandfather. And I think about the way she's using literally the flesh of her, of her father, um, the scars on his body. And what do those represent? Um, when she's looking at this story of, of colonial violence in India mm -hmm. and, and perhaps why she didn't end up the, the story of why she ended up growing up in England, and, mm -hmm. which I would imagine also the question of like, why is your family in Hawaii and then California and, mm -hmm. and now here? Um, 
so I, I was hoping maybe you could speak to this question of the body mm-hmm. um, and to the missing body of your grandfather. Because in another piece you say, um, in the Poetry Foundation, you wrote, the first corpse I did not see was my grandfather's. His corpse is why I am here, poetry. Mm-hmm. Intuitively, I feel like there's there's a move that you're both making that is a kindred move. Mm-hmm. And it has something to do with with a, with bodies. I knew that when I began to take seriously the fact and the bitter responsibility of being a citizen of the United States, that I would have to confront my ancestors' struggle to become citizens of the United States. And in particular, my grandfather's struggle. And I knew that in order to understand my uncontested situation, I would have to really interrogate what he endured and how the the united states and the both the the impossibility of becoming a citizen and then the potential of becoming a citizen in a way shaped uh his relationship to himself and that he had to disfigure himself and um transform himself into a certain type of um legible body um it, w- it was kind of, th- it was in large part through my grandfather's experience, as well as other of my ancestors who immigrated from Japan, um, that I was able to understand what this country even is. So in, in a way that hopefully it wasn't uh, too violent as his grandson, I sort of used his body and his life as this map that, you know, extended from Hiroshima to um, Death Valley. Um, and that I really needed him and from his experience to his skin to be able to really understand what is this country about? Um, and what is my relationship to the history of this place? Um, both personally and communally and nationally. So maybe there's some correspondence there with, um, humanimal or what you described of humanimal. Well, is there a correspondence there with what you've just said with your own words, his corpse is why I am here, poetry? Yeah, well, that feels even more personal. So he died when in 1996, and I was 18, but he had Alzheimer's for, we'll say, 15 years. It's, it's hard to chart exactly, which means that he had it since I was age three. So my entire relationship with him was of was a relationship with a disintegrating being, a, a, a person who was in a constant state of decline, a person who was in a, a constant state of degeneration. I, I was not there when he died. Um, I did not go to his funeral. I wasn't even there when he was dying, so I didn't see him the last five years of his life. This is just a... Sp- this is just a speculation, but I feel like not even that a lot of what I write is about him, but that I write at all is, is at least in part related to the fact that I was not a participant in his dying and his death because my very earliest writings, including the first thing I ever published, um, were stories about him were stories of trying to recuperate 
even just my sense of who this person was, who had an enormous impact on me, who was someone I was very close with, despite his, his disintegrative state. Um, maybe it was intuitive, maybe it was unconscious, but I felt like um, I wanted to reanimate him hmm. because there was something about him and his life that would teach me something about mine, myself and my life. Um, that's the unconscious part. But he was a figure that I felt like he was a figure that that almost instantaneously populated my writing. Um, So when I think about his was the first corpse I did not see. That's basically a way of saying um, he was my first loss. You know, he was my first and maybe most primary loss. And that out of that loss generated this entire imaginative space this inner life that has now become an outer life. Um, and that over time, what it revealed was my relationship to the, to the country in which I live. Hmm. Well, I want to connect these thoughts (laughs) (laughs) to, to an ongoing interest of yours of memorials and memorialization, which we see throughout your work, Mm -hmm. books and otherwise. First, I'm just going to read a quote that I connect to this interest of yours. I don't think you're necessarily connecting it, but I'm going to make a potential one where you said the occasion of poetry has made makes possible the dehumanization of the body through predatory grieving, the loss of one's own body, the loss of another's body, the loss of all bodies, because if a corpse is not real, neither is the living body. So when I think about this, about the question of the corpse being real and and how that reflects back on the people who are alive in relationship to it. Um, and I think about, again, your, your investigation of memorialization and memorials. We can look at, in the grave on the wall, you go looking for the cemetery of your ancestors in a town that no longer exists in Japan. You go to the commemorations of Nagasaki and Hiroshima. You go to the African burial ground in Manhattan. And in other writings, you visit the memorial stupa in the killing fields of Cambodia. And you write about the Japanese internment memorial here in Portland, Oregon. And you have a quote in one of your essays that says, If you don't know anything about the history of a place, the rise and rise and genocidal history of a place that is that place. If you don't know anything about the people who were killed and the people who did the killing and the people who neither killed nor did the killing, but did the killing. If you don't know anything about the history that is the present moment and vice versa and the next and the bodies underneath your feet and the bodies in the air, you're breathing. That is America. And when I think of that, that, quote, which is amazing. Um, I would initially imagine that you'd be happy about the existence of memorials that, <laughs> that, um, yeah. that they would be this gesture, this counter gesture against the forgetting, this right. acknowledgement of history and of place and in place typically, not always, but often in specific places. But it feels like when we visit these memorials and commemorations with you, the predominant one is a feeling of something being hidden or avoided 
or prematurely closed off um, through the process of memorialization. Mm -hmm. And so much so that when I'm with you in these different visits, the things that I still remember are not as so much the memorials, but uh, the guy in the blue jacket with the leaf blower and someone mowing the lawn near one of the statues or the police sweeping out the homeless of the Portland Japanese Memorial. So I was hoping in a larger sense, you could talk about why, why you feel like you return to this question of memorialization and uh, memorials and also um, and particularly why you feel attracted to go to them when it does feel like there's a dissatisfaction that happens over and over in the encounter with them. Yeah. Yeah. Your questions are great. <laughs> I'm, pr I'm really disarming. Um, I am happy when I go to memorials. You are. Yeah. I'm also sad and angry and disappointed. Um, I'm also inevitably distracted. But what I've determined is that the thing I'm distracted by is actually the memorial. Uh, I go to a memorial thinking, for example, this is a memorial for the hundreds of thousands of people who died um, in the atomic bombing of Nagasaki. But what happens when you get to a memorial is you, because it's in the present and because life is unfolding as it does, you start to pay attention to things that are happening in that moment. And to me, the things that are happening in that moment are the true consciousness of that memorial, hmm. or, or at least the, the manifestation of the memorial. Um, and I'm so I'm happy about going and being surprised and being um, kind of, uh, um, what would be the word, and being shook out of my preconceived ideas of what it is that we're commemorating, right? Um, the thing that frustrates me about memorials in general is the fact that they're attempting to um, articulate a history that, for the most part, has not ended. I don't think there's a single memorial I've been to that um, is addressing a history that's actually over, you know. And I think no memorial really addresses that fully. A question that has been really um, motivating for me in the past years, past couple years, is um, a question posed by Christina Sharp in her book *In the Wake* on blackness and being, and it is, how do we memorialize an event that is still ongoing? That's a that's a huge question. It seems like a simple question, but it's a huge question. And I, I and I wonder how memorials themselves might answer that question. Hmm. Um, because in in my opinion, it seems like most of the events that are being memorialized, at least in the memorials that I have visited that I'm that I'm drawn to, most of those events are still ongoing. They might be ongoing in a different form, um, in maybe a less legible form, maybe in an even more legible form, more explicit form. But it makes me wonder, what is it exactly when we go to a memorial that we're memorializing, that we're remembering? When you talk about the things that you see that aren't part of the memorial necessarily, mm. but are expressions of the consciousness of the memorial. Yeah. For instance, the homeless sweep 
in the Japanese memorial here in Portland, you're suggesting that that sweep isn't is an ongoing process of the same process that's of the Japanese internment memorialization that everyone else is looking at as right. a past experience. Yeah. So I think it functions, you know, a memorial can function the same way as like an exhibition or a photograph. There are, there's always that rupture, that, um, that expression of some alternate, but maybe deeper truth. So yeah, you're talking about the Japanese American historical plaza on the, on the Willamette river. Um, I've spent a lot of time there. It's a, it's a very peaceful and completely frustrating memorial to the, the forced removal um, and incarceration of Japanese Americans in Portland. But it's an example of when I go, I'm drawn to a memorial because of the history. Like it's a fairly super, you know, even though I've done this many times and I'm constantly drawn to these places, I'm constantly seeking out the graves and the graveyards, um, the murals, you know, anything that commemorates anything really. Um, I always return to them fairly naively thinking, oh, I'm, I'm going to be communing with this history. But then I get there. And for example, at the historical plaza here, I'll be, I get there and what I see instead of that history is I see, you know, a squadron of police officers um, kicking all of the homeless people off the grass, you know, driving in their vehicles up on the grass and like forcing them out. And instead of thinking that that's just an uh, incidental, um, my inclination is to actually see that as the memorial. So whatever the memorial intended or whatever the makers of the memorial intended um, is either being thwarted or, in fact, realized by what takes place there. And maybe the memorial itself is more fluid, is more expansive and flexible. Hmm. The people who imagined it might have thought we are commemorating our, you know, our past. Hmm. But I feel like memorials are infinitely more about the present. Um, than they are about the past. All right. I'm going to take a, a leap again, and I know I'm going to make this connection with a uh, review that you wrote a long time ago. So again, returning to Humanimal, there's a word in Humanimal that you used to describe it that I would use rightly or wrongly to describe the pleasure of reading your work, not just the grave on the wall, but all of your poetry collections as well. Uh, which is this word trans-existence. And in that review, you said, there is a space opened in the writing in Humanimal and elsewhere that is a reflection of Banu's subjects, the subjects of her writing, in a way that implicates the reader in the life of the subject, makes the reader a potential subject or a potential of the subject. To be blunt, I don't want the quote-unquote poetics of immigration here or anywhere, but the poetry, the life, the shocks, and ecosystems. By this, I mean a kind of trans-existence. And the way I connect this to you is the first thing we encounter in the grave on the wall is the government document that looks at your grandfather as... Uh, potential threat to the United States and a fragile psyche uh, with no 
evidence put forth that either of these things are true, and then his interment number. But really on either side of, of these words are what I feel like are the first gesture of trans existence. So your dedication to Yumi Taguchi, which is both your daughter and your great-great-grandmother. And then on the other side of the government words is the only memory your grandfather has of growing up in Hiroshima Prefecture. And it's that of washing his grandfather's mm. feet, the corpse of his grandfather's feet. Um, and so we get this gesture of of um, your daughter, your great-great-grandmother, your grandfather washing the corpse of his grandfather. And then if we look at other works of yours, so Evening Oracle is it the Evening Oracle is named after a form of divination that uses the words spoken by passerbys in the evening. Uh and you constructed prose blocks where each sentence of a paragraph is taken from a different person you corresponded with. So we get unattributed sentences from Mary Rufel, Don Miche, Etel Adnan, Rob Schlegel. And this book was written at night itself, before sleep, while sleeping, not in your own bed, but in the beds of friends and strangers. Mm-hmm. So, and similarly, this book frequently has this, this new book, The Grave on the Wall, frequently has sentences woven into your prose that have been lifted from other writers mm-hmm. and that appear in italics. Um, so even when we're getting your story, occasionally we'll get a line from Etel Adnan or from another writer that gets um, inserted into your prose. Mm-hmm. And even when you go to um, try to find the cemetery uh, <laughs> in your in in Japan, in this town that is no longer on a map, mm-hmm. your impulse is to write to a Japanese poet who lives in the area to ask for help. Mm-hmm. And that poet ends up helping you and then finding successfully with you the cemetery and then writing a poem mm-hmm. where you're in the poem finding the cemetery. Mm-hmm. So there's this I don't want to call it intertextuality because it's found. It's, I would use the word transexistence. There's this way, way you're pulling in ancestral lineage, but also living people mm-hmm. in into your work in a way that um, it's actually also entering their work mm. too. And I wanted to hear more about this, whether <laughs> you call it transi- yeah. transexistence or not, yeah. about this um, this notion of writing from someone else's bed, this notion of creating wor- work from other people's words, um, and then even reaching out to people you don't know who then uh, become crucial to your own self-knowledge, but then where you become characters in their work as mm-hmm. well. I guess I have a fantasy or maybe a delusion of what it means to be an ancestor a fantasy of of maybe being inaugurated into that space after i die which to me is a, is a collective space it's not it's not individual people um but it's a it's a mass being an ancestor is, means being part of a collectivity and part of that fantasy is thinking about well what if that could happen before i die what would it be like if we could be ancestors while we're alive? And maybe, in fact, 
that's true. Maybe when we think about our ancestors, we're actually imagining um, people who are alive or we're imagining them when they were alive. Um, at the root of this fantasy, I think, is loneliness. So in a, in a super worldly um, answer to your question, part of my process of writing and research is just a way to include other people to at least give myself the illusion that I'm thwarting the loneliness that I feel as a writer and as a person. Hmm. Um, so maybe that manifests in creative decisions or, um, or aesthetic choices or research based decisions or whatever it is, but it's really, I'm, I want, I want to invite people into this process um, when it comes to like trying to locate a graveyard in the middle of, uh, in the middle of Japan, I need to, you know, I need to rely on other people to help me do that. But then what happens when I rely on those people and I really invest myself in that reliance is that, um, the graveyard starts to dissipate around the relationship that forms, you know? And then the relationship, like I said, in, in the way that um, uh, the present moment becomes the memorial, the relationship becomes the graveyard, you know, everything is about what's happening in the moment. Hmm. And so then I think, well, maybe these are all, I'm just creating occasions where I can connect with people. Maybe that's, maybe that's really what all of this is. And sometimes I fail. Sometimes I'm not like very good at connecting with people, but I keep generating these occasions where those things are possible. Hmm. Um, but yeah, for many, my partner and I traveled for many years and slept in a lot of different people's beds, friends, strangers, family members. And we did a lot of writing in those spaces. And, um, you start to feel like you're partaking of some, part of their unconscious or subconscious life. Uh, in the same way that when you dream, suddenly your dreams are populated by all these people that you know and don't know all the way back to when you were young. And it's inexplicable. But you also it's also something you don't really question. You just kind of enjoy it when it's happening. Mm -hmm. And then you wake up into the rigidity of, of your life in which you're constantly trying to revise your social life in your social existence. Hmm. So for me, these pilgrimages and these returns to the ruins, and these returns to memorials and the creation of books, it's not like I'm trying to create a dream life, but it's like I'm trying to um, permit and enjoy the logic of, of dream life in waking life. Hmm. If that makes any sense. That does. That's amazing. I want to, I want to take this idea of, of, following dream logic while we're awake, which I feel like is a big part of your work. I mean, you do mention dreams by Kurosawa, the film and the, mm -hmm. and quite on by Kobayashi, which are influences for the grave on the wall, but also dreamlike death infused fable stories. Mm -hmm. Um, but also er early in the memoir, you recount the memory of, uh, again, of your grandfather washing his grandfather's corpse. And you say that your grandfather saw his corpse 
and thought his body looked like it was dreaming to him. And, and this is the line, like he is dreaming us into the room with him, washing his body, dreaming my thoughts even that I think he is dreaming. And this circularity that's happening here again, which is also sort of like this idea of what would happen if you were writing from someone else's bed, mm-hmm. like what sort of unconscious influences you have. It just reminded me of, of your, your correspondence with me, um, mm. leading up to the interview and the way that my own dreams have changed. And I feel like it's the way you approached our conversation. So with almost every email that you sent me as we were arranging otherwise mundane logistics, you, you would share a dream of yours. And I was actually at the beginning, I was impressed and also envious with how rich and evocative your dream life seemed to be. But over time, you sharing the dreams, I felt like eventually my dreams became less mundane. And mm. so I would say that, you know, prior to our conversation, I was having mostly dreams that were mundane anxiety, logistical dreams, Mm -hmm. like things not working out the way they didn't feel like they had a ton of symbolic import or otherwise they didn't seem iconic, but, um, then they gradually became notable where I would wake (laughs) up and feel like I was different, not just having some sort of an extension of a, a waking worry in my dream life. And it made me wonder what it would be like which to enact what you're enacting, essentially, is inviting other consciousnesses into your work mm-hmm. and inviting – because I'm seeing like just through an email exchange, the way the tone is different between us and the content that you are putting forth into a, into a container that wouldn't normally invite it changed my consciousness mm-hmm. or my subconsciousness. Mm-hmm. And I'm just intrigued. I don't even know if this is a question. <laughs> But I, but I, but I'm intrigued yeah. by this alchemy. If I yeah. think if my dreams can change so much, in in just a handful of emails, how would my art change? Uh, yeah. Well, I mean, it's possible. It's not that your dreams changed. It's just that your relationship to them changed, right? I mean, you're saying that they went from being logistical to becoming something else. But yeah, where I'd wake up with these dreams, where I'd want to think about what those why, why were those things happening in these dreams they they um yeah they were mysterious and resisted reduction and right yeah i mean so much of that really it like comes down to the writing of them you know i mean writing of course is like a a mnemonic device for dreams to actually become realized but also when you start writing down even the most mundane dream they become these wonderful little short stories and then if you do that every day, I mean, again, to be really mundane in a response to, to at least part of this is that um, I have a one-year-old. I have a daughter who's turning one next week. The last year of my life has been um, defined by very odd sleep, which is obviously, you know, pretty normal. Um the more you wake up, the more dreams you have because <laughs> oh. you only really, you only really dream right after you fall asleep. And when you wake up, I think, 
I'm probably not right about that at all. But or maybe those are the ones you're most likely to remember if that's not true. Yeah, because it's you're in that like pre-conscious state. I think um, when you're deep sleep, you might be dreaming, but I don't know if that how that manifests. Mm. So I have I've been having a lot of dreams, and I've been having occasion to actually write them down. In order to do any writing at all, I have to wake up very early in the morning. Um, so usually when I'm corresponding with people, I'm doing it right after I've emerged from a dream. So it's actually, it's, it's the, one of the most immediate things on my mind Mm -hmm. in addition to just responding to the email. Yeah. I love, I love, I want to email with you forever now. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. But I think it's, I think it's really our attitude or our relationship to it. I've, I feel like my dreams help me. It's kind of like going on a philosopher's walk. There's this long path in Kyoto in the northeast or on the the eastern edge of Kyoto where it's called the Philosopher's Walk. And it's just a long walk down this this shallow canal where ducks are floating. And the idea is maybe, you know, centuries ago if a philosopher was trying or a mathematician or a poet was trying to resolve a problem, they would go on this walk. Um and in the course of that walk, they would be able to sort of resolve what they were, what they had um, bumped up against. And I feel like dreams do that. They, they, they're these walks that help you resolve the problems that you're enmeshed in, hmm. you know. And by presenting to you an alternative logic, you suddenly realize, oh, I know how to solve this or I know how to finish that chapter or whatever it might be. Well, you're in, you're in town to teach a class on something you call the poetics of post-memory. Yeah. Is that at all related to this? I, I just think of, sure. I'm just wondering what post-memory, what post-memory yeah. is. Yeah. Well, there's this, um, there's this scholar, Marianne Hirsch. I'm, I'm sure it's been formulated by other people as well, but she's like a, a historian of the Holocaust. And post-memory is the memory that the generation after possesses of okay. an event that transpired before they were born. But yet it's, it's as I, you know, so I'm giving this lecture and I talk about it. It's a kind of memory that bears the intimacy and pressure of a memory, even though it's not something you experience directly. Right. So, you know. It's not exactly a dream. It's not a dream. It's something you've actually inherited Mm -hmm. and that you've picked up through witnessing behaviors and listening to stories and that you possess in your mind and body as an actual memory. Mm. Um, But what is that exactly? So it's so I think about the 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 poets, the Japanese American poets who are descendants of the camps. So Sansei, Yonsei, third, fourth, fifth generation that those that's the generation. I'm fourth generation, um, third and fourth generation. And. There's a, there's a group of Japanese American poets who are writing poetry about their parents and grandparents and great grandparents experiences, um, as if trying to understand the the memory that we possess inside of us about something that we didn't directly experience. Mm. Um, it's really interesting. And of course it's all, it's, it's transgenerational. It's about the kind of inheritance that we are born into of all of the things that brought us to the moment of our lives, you know, um, in that sense, like we all are the embodiment of post memory. Right. Um, so in, in a way it's, it's a, it's a pretty basic idea. Hmm. It seems. Well, I'd love for you to read a, a 
short section at the bottom of 41 that I think is a good example of sort of the dreamlike quality in the way you relate a real-life event. My great-great-grandmother Yumi Taguchi's house no longer exists, or it exists as a letter from a mother to her son suspended in the air like a window without a wall. The day I visited where the house no longer exists, there was smoke in the air and the smell of grilled eel. There was a river and in the middle of rice paddies, a graveyard. The town did not exist either. Nakanose became Kashima, Namatsu to the west, Kaminakama to the east, mountains to the south, a river flowing west into Shimabara Bay, the Ariake Sea. We traveled by bus. We departed from a parking lot in Osaka, ten at night. No station, but a small park across the street from a parking lot, folding tables, young people with clipboards. We sat on a curb beneath a young tree. On the bus, seats were assigned by last name. A piece of paper taped to the front seat read, Shimoda. I had never seen Shimoda in katakana. I read and understood my name for the first time as Western, American. Everyone had already taken off their shoes, put on paper slippers, and fallen asleep. The road was black as a river with no moon. We sailed soundless as fish, trees tall and feathered. No reading, no lights, no one snored. We were sailing off the map, the map dissolving in our wake. I was feeling foolish and sentimental. I tried to write a poem. I scratched a few lines while looking out the window. The thick, feathery trees started to wake up. In the beginning, I was blind. I fell asleep, and when I awoke, the country was blue. We are crossing the Kanmon Strait. Seven hundred years before, the eight-year-old emperor of the Heike, facing defeat by the swords and arrows of the Genji, leapt with his grandmother into the waves. Dawn, the shadow of the bus began to float upon the opening to the inland sea. We're talking today to Brandon Shimoda about his latest book from City Lights, The Grave on the Wall. I want to take what we're talking about into the contemporary moment more explicitly. I know we've been talking about this is all ongoing. Uh, you have a, a couple, I'm going to quote a couple of your recent tweets. Uh, one is a phrase from Baldwin that says, ancestral and daily are, are synonyms. And a couple of lines of a Darwish poem that go, does a bomb have grandchildren? Us. Does a piece of shrapnel have grandparents? Us. And in your description of Humanimal, you say, we live in multiple, often conflicting times and spaces at once and are forced to. So I was thinking if, if the ancestral and the daily are synonyms, I wanted to synonymize the ancestral memoir that you've written with the daily. So if we take the for instance, the photograph of the Japanese-American prisoners in, in blackface and in Native American clothes and your grandfather in women's clothes. Um, we also need to consider that these prisons that were holding these Japanese uh, prisoners were originally forts, which were used to fight the wars against the Native Americans, and that these same prisons that held the Japanese are now being used as concentration camps mm -hmm. for the refugees arriving at the southern border. And you can feel how time 
is all happening at once and collapsing in a, in one space. So I was hoping maybe you could talk a little bit about one of the places, like for instance, Fort Sill, Oklahoma, if you could, if you could speak to the way you're engaging with this ancestral memoir and also sort of engaging with the ongoingness of the ancestral memoir. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Thinking about Fort Sill, this was just like a couple days ago that, um, Oklahoma decided to put that plan on hold. So Fort Sill was a, um, a concentration camp for Japanese immigrants during World War II. It's also been used, it incarcerated uh, Apache Indians for 20 years, maybe. And Geronimo was Geronimo held there. and buried there. Um, it also had a native um, boarding school for forced assimilation for many decades. So it's, it's, it's a military base. So obviously military bases are designed to be these kind of catch all, you know, sites of exception, um, and shape shifting. It, it changes to accommodate the, the momentary crisis that the United States largely manufactures. Um, and Obama and Trump have both used it for refugees from the border. Sure. Yeah. I mean, that's what it's for. Ostensibly, that's what it's for. And that's what's, that's the use to which it's being put. And two or three days ago, maybe two days ago, um, the governor put that, the current plan of incarcerating 1600 migrant children there on hold. That's after a couple of major protests, um, that were led by Japanese American elders there was one protest like a month and a half ago or so, a small group of Japanese Americans gathered at the gate and uh, shared their experience. None of them were incarcerated there, but they were all incarcerated as children in the United States. Um, and there were two men, two Japanese men who were murdered at Fort Sill. Um, that, by the way, when you say, when you quoted, if the, what is it? If the corpse is not real, neither is the living body. Mm -hmm. So this is kind of getting off the topic of your question, but thinking about, um, the kinds of death that are, that is produced. So for example, in Fort Sill, two men were murdered by the guards and their murders were basically cleaned from the historical record. You know, it wasn't part of the narrative of that situation. Um, but if you do not confront the deaths of those two Issei men, then perhaps you're not confronting anything about the story, therefore anything about existence. Like it's, it's really the corpse that is illuminating, that's at the center of existence. Mm -hmm. And to um, elide it is to elide existence itself, right? So that's, maybe that's the idea there. Many people probably would be surprised to learn that how many Japanese internment camps there were that they weren't just in California. Like when we're talking about oh, Fort, right. Fort Missoula, uh, yeah. Montana and Fort Sill in Oklahoma. Yeah. But maybe you could speak just briefly to how, just how widespread the concentration camp system was in world war two. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there was, there was a system of incarceration across Canada, um, in Mexico, Northern Mexico. Japanese Mexicans who were incarcerated in Mexico, concentration camps. Um, there were 
South Japanese South Americans that were incarcerated in Texas. I mean, it was very, yes, what you hear. So Japanese American historical plaza here in Portland lists 10 camps. And those are the 10 camps that are most often referenced. Um, but there were dozens of incarceration sites from, from Hawaii to Ellis Island. And if you think about it as from Hawaii to Ellis Island, that is the United States. That is from coast to coast. Mm -hmm. And if you think about it from Canada all the way down to, to South America, that is the entire North and South American continent. So this idea of Japanese American incarceration, it's constantly presented as this sort of finite, relatively contained history, but it was absolutely as um, expansive and extensive as, as were uh, uh, citizens and immigrants of Japanese descent anywhere that they were. Hmm. Um, and so I live in Tucson, Arizona. And when I first moved there, I didn't know much about the history of in Tucson of, of incarceration, but there, there were seven incarceration sites within a, an hour, two hour drive of where I live. Wow. Um, so it's kind of like once you touch one, another one lights up and then you touch that one and another one lights up and pretty soon this, like it's, it's this, it is this Atlas of incarceration that not only lights up in relation to that history, but like you're saying also exposes the ways that the indigenous populations were incarcerated, the, the way that it touches upon the mass incarceration of black and brown people. It's just the more you touch, the more it illuminates. And so many of these of these sites are in pretty remote locations. Mm. You know, in Tucson, there was a, a, a prison labor camp on the top of the mountain and you can't see it from the road. You can't see it from the ground. Um, they're invisible and they're intentionally invisible but once you touch it, like all kinds of stuff is generated and you and, can't really reverse your awareness once that happens. And wasn't there one site where the Japanese were used as free labor to build reservation infrastructure? I mean, that's a whole nother history or part of the history, how incarceration overlaps with the colonization of indigenous land. So, um, in most of the camps, the Japanese Americans were taken out for agricultural projects or infrastructural projects. So there was you know, the, the two camps that were in Arizona were on active reservations. And, you know, they helped build irrigation systems and they helped with the agriculture that um, helped to sort of like further entrench those, those sites for the indigenous populations. You know, the, the personnel of the department that oversaw incarceration was overlapped with the personnel of the Bureau of Indian Affairs. And in fact, the director of one was the same person as the director of the other. Mm -hmm. So they were, they were using the same tactics of control with both populations. Um, so in a way, I feel like one of the many realities of Japanese American incarceration is that it was experimental. I mean, it was sort of like, um, a laboratory in which they they were devising um, the strategies for future forms of oppression, hmm. and I guess maybe one of the one of if if there is a bright side to the current terrible moment, it seems to be this 
the coalition and solidarity that's happening. I know the Apache said this is the first time they've done solidarity actions with the Japanese community at Fort Hill, which is pretty exciting. And then seeing, seeing the Latinx and Jewish communities at the various ice, uh, offices around the country yeah blockading them yeah at fort sill maybe it was just a week ago i don't know i was watching it on a live stream in terms of the coalition it was indigenous activists jewish activists latinx act i mean it was it was empowering inspiring and utterly heartbreaking Mm. you know to see all of these different communities coming together on the behalf of teenagers and children from Central America, you know, and you know, and so temporarily at least they've closed the possibility for that being a camp, but you know, it's, it's people against the overwhelming wall of power, you know? Well, just to add a, a surreal twist to the whole thing, could you speak a little bit about Jennifer Nakamoto and the Nakamoto company and, Oh, the the weirdness that a Japanese American runs the is the ice contractor for inspecting the camps, who by most accounts is doing a terrible job uh, and underreporting, right. but yet at the same time is connecting her care for the refugees to her mother's experience of being born in one of the camps, in one of the internment camps. And so the assurance that she gives to the world is based on her personal narrative, mm-hmm. which I imagine is would be particularly distressing to Japanese Americans. Yeah. I I have her email address and I'm very tempted. Well, I I will write to her just to ask her questions. Not to necessarily put her on the spot, but um, I'm currently writing a book about the ru- the afterlife, the ruins of Japanese-American incarceration. Mm. And that and her experience of being someone who has absorbed her mother's experience as an incarcerated enemy of the United States, of processing that experience in a way in which she is aiding and, ab- and abetting ICE. Um, through the form of her group, which is an inspector of the of these detention facilities, and as you're saying, underreporting violations, misrepresenting violations, intentionally. I mean, it's not a. It's not like they're a. They're, they're not, not doing their job. If they were, if they were reporting what was going on, they would they would be fired. They wouldn't. ICE would not be working with them. So right. they're doing exactly what they're in, that ICE intends them to do. Um, but as you said, she says that her work is is motivated by her her mother's um, experience of injustice, and I feel cynical. I feel like I'm being cynical when I say that it's not surprising. It's it's devastating, but the the consequence of that kind of trauma takes a variety of forms. Um, on one hand, you have someone like Satsuki Ina, who is leading some of the protests at Fort Sill and has spent much of her life. She was born in Tule Lake. Mm. She spent much of her life um, as an activist. She's made films, um, working with people to sort of like uh, exercise their trauma or at least to investigate it. 
on on the other end of the spectrum, you have someone like Nakamoto, who is an active participant in the dehumanization of of refugees and migrants. Both of those are a consequence of Japanese American incarceration, mm-hmm. and um, in order to really know very much about it, I'd have to I'd have to ask her to. And maybe she hasn't really thought through it. Maybe that's just her way of making it um, seem like it's above board when in fact it's part of the problem, right? But I view, even if I'm, you know, with Satsuki, which I am, I recognize that the consequences are as disturbing and perverse and varied as there are people. I mean, it's that's part of the intention of um, the perpetrators of trauma is that you're creating, you're creating foot soldiers of future forms of oppression. Hmm. And it's, and I, and I almost hate saying that, but look at the world. And that's how it works. I think so too. Well, it, it, feels important to return to your grandfather before we end, mm-hmm. not just as the subject of a photograph, but as a photographer mm-hmm. himself, because we haven't mentioned this yet, yeah. that your grandfather was a photographer and that you come from a family of image creators. So mm-hmm. your sister is a photographer, your mom is a visual artist, you, you're an artist, um, and that your grandfather studied under William Mortensen a photographer that Ansel Adams referred to as the Antichrist. So I was curious, I don't know how much you can speak to this, but if you can, I would love to hear if you could speak to the aesthetics of Mortensen and your, and by proxy, your grandfather versus Ansel Adams, like why Ansel Adams would have this view of the style that your grandfather pursued. And also any thoughts on Adams's own project of, uh, doing a book of photography on the interned Japanese Americans during mm-hmm. the war since he did do, I don't think a lot of people know that he did a book on that now, oh, but, yeah. but, yeah. but he did. Um, so, so talk to us about, <laughs> talk to us about that. Yeah. Talk to us about your grandfather's photography and aesthetic under Mortensen and, and then how you feel like Adams's f- photographs at the camps are viewed today. So my grandfather was, an apprentice of Mortensen and Mortensen was, he was, he worked in Hollywood. He did a lot of like very kind of glamorous, um, photographs of Hollywood actresses. Uh, he was a proponent of pictorial photography. And, and one of the, one of like the aspects of it was that it's, you're making photographs that kind of have the appearance of a drawing or a painting, Hmm. you know, they're very lush. They're very beautiful many of his photographs look like they were done in graphite, for example. And then subsequently, many of my grandfather's early photographs were of that um, tradition. So they, even looking at them up close, they look like they were done in pencil. Hmm. And they're impressionistic. And they were maybe, maybe the complete antithesis of what um, photographers like Ansel Adams were trying to do. Um even though they were both going after some idea of the romantic, right? I mean, it's not like Ansel Adams was a street photographer. 
he was taking pictures of Yosemite and all of these like sublime, you know, landscapes. And so the feud that Mortensen and Adams had, I don't fully understand because to me, the, in a way they were two doing two versions of the same thing. Mm. Um, I, I think my grandfather eventually emerged from that. But what's interesting is there's a photograph that I have in the book, a photograph by my grandfather that's at the Center for Creative Photography in Tucson. And I didn't realize that when I moved to Tucson, but I discovered that there was a photograph of his theirs, but it was, a, it was actually originally attributed to William Mortensen. And I kind of had this back and forth with the curator there, the archivist there, and she was trying to convince me that this photograph that my grandfather made of his sister, it's a photograph that I grew up with, I know it, she was trying to convince me that it was actually a photograph made by this William Mortensen, who's a, a white man, and that Midori Shimoda was William Mortensen's alias. Oh, wow. So I had... <laughs> and I was like, well, Midori Shimoda, that is my grandfather's name, and that photograph is hanging in my grandmother's house. It's a picture of his, my Aunt Setsuko. And she was saying, well, we had a scholar come in and... and um, he determined that it was um, Midori Shimoda is, is the alias of William Mortensen, that he used this alias when he was doing work of an oriental nature, right? Pictures of Japanese people. So there's a lot about that relationship between my grandfather and Mortensen that I don't, that is sort of lost to history that he never shared and nobody ever shared. And, um, you know, I think a lot of it was that when my grandfather was starting out, there weren't, you know, there weren't that many models of Japanese immigrant or Japanese American photographers that he could have studied. He studied with who was, who was available. Mm -hmm. And he was also interested in what Mortensen was doing, but you had to kind of appeal to, to that, to that, um, authority in order to make it anywhere as a photographer. Mm. Um, I mean, Ansel Adams was another example of, like Dorothea Lange and like Francis Stewart, who um, claimed that they're that they're they were attempting objectivity, but they were still producing photographs that that painted incarceration in a very positive light. That um, the priority was placed on this idea that this population were they were American. We can't forget that they are American and that their allegiance is to the United States. And that, to me, is not a very um, useful way of looking at any history. That just further promotes this kind of, like, nationalist agenda. Um, so one of the things that um, I mention briefly in the book is how he encouraged his, his, the people who were posing his photographs to smile. So there's, a, there's been a lot of scholarship about the smile um, hmm. of, the, of the incarceree. And I mean, that's a fascinating subject in, in and of itself, but he, he was kind of one of the main, um, progenitors of that attitude, that mm. bearing that was then used to show to the, uh, to America, the American populace that, um, it's a shame. It's a terrible thing that's happening, but they're enduring it with integrity and grace. Therefore, um, it's ultimately okay. Yeah. Right.
So as I mentioned earlier, the phrase grave on the wall appears in, in many of your works going far back. You have a song entitled the grave on the wall. It appears in your poetry collections. And you've said that all of your books cannibalized, misplaced, forgotten that came before this one are part of this one. Hmm. And this one has emerged and unfolded from the books that predate it. So I was curious if this book, this ancestral memoir, which includes all the others before it, if you feel like it's some sort of culmination and perhaps an ending of, of some sort in the, in a writing sense, or whether your next books will in some similar way be iterations and re reiterations of the grave on the wall in this sort of cannibalistic process. Mm -hmm. The way I am currently viewing the grave on the wall, which I'm still, I'm still, it's like we're in this courting phase, you know, the book only came out a few weeks ago. I've only been living with it for a few weeks and we've been circling around each other, you know, trying to like, like roommates <laughs> and it's been really wonderful and illuminating, but I'm the way I currently feel about it is that it's a beginning as opposed to a culmination. It's uh whatever the opposite of a, the culmination is mm -hmm. a beats a beginning, even though there's all this stuff that exists in its DNA um, in, in fragmentary form or fully realized form. I feel like this is kind of the gate that I needed to create that I could then pass through mm. in order to start writing about other things related to this. Mm -hmm. you know? So like the book I'm writing now about Japanese American incarceration, I feel like that is an expansion of things I'm starting to think about here. It feels like the process of aging. It's sometimes I wonder if I'm, I'm just a being that's like folded on top of previous versions of myself, or if I'm myself, I'm a photocopy of a photocopied version of myself that, you know, one of my favorite writers is Marguerite Duras, who, um, she really only had a couple of stories that she wanted to tell. And she told them magnificently many, many, many times across many, many volumes. And not one of those volumes is any less than any of the others. In fact, they're all completely integral to the to the work that she was creating. And I sort of feel, I don't know if I'm necessarily doing that, but as you're kind of listing off the different grave on, graves on the wall that have, that have appeared in previous work, maybe I just can't escape this really small set of obsessions. Hmm. And if I if I kind of live within that small set of obsessions in a certain way, then they become eternal and can continue spinning long after I've disappeared. Um, so I'm trying to take some of an active part in making that possible. Thanks for being on the show today, Brandon. Thank you, David. It's been really wonderful. We are talking today to Brandon Shimoda, the author of the Grave on the Wall. You've been listening to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's program was recorded at the studios of KBOO, volunteer-powered, non-commercial, listener-sponsored, full-strength community radio from Portland, Oregon, found at kboo.fm. 
the best place to follow Brandon Shimoda and the dream logic of his mind is on Twitter at Brandon Shimoda. Brandon has added the reading of a poem, Fog, by the Lebanese poet Etel Adnan to the bonus archive. This joins supplemental material by Ted Chang, Marlon James, Max Porter, Laylee Long Soldier, Carmen Maria Machado, Diane Williams, Christina Rivera Garza, and others. All of this can be found at patreon.com slash between the covers. Finally, I'd like to thank Imre Lodbrog and Barbara Browning for creating this outro. Their album, Imre Lodbrog, A Sapatita Me, can be found on iTunes. And Barbara Browning's trove of ukulele covers can be found at soundcloud.com slash Barbara Browning.